1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Academic Life. I'm your show host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Dr. Gupta, who's going to share from her new book, I Kick and Fly. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gupta.
0: Thank you, Dr. Gessler. I'm really pleased to be on The Academic Life with you.
1: I am so glad that you're here and you're going to share this book and the background that led up to it. But before we jump into that, will you please tell us about yourself?
0: I am an author activist. I used to be a journalist and I was traveling through the hills of Nepal when I came across rows of villages with missing girls and I didn't know what was going on. I followed the trail and to my horror, I found little girls locked up in small rooms in the brothels of Bombay. And when I saw that, something inside me snapped. I was depressed. I was sad. I was also angry. And finally, I was determined to do something about it. And uh, I ended up making a documentary on that subject uh, called The Selling of Innocence, Making the documentary changed my life and I became a lifelong activist. So I won an Emmy for Outstanding Investigative Journalism. I was on stage in the Broadway Marquis Hotel in uh, New York. And when everyone was applauding, all I could see beyond the bright lights were the eyes of the mothers in the brothels of Mumbai who had told me their story because they wanted a different future for their daughters. And so I remember that was the instant when I decided I'm going to use my Emmy and my documentary not to build a career in journalism, but to make a difference. So that's when I became a lifelong activist. And basically, my activism was um, aimed at uh, creating a world in which no girl or woman is bought or sold. And I did that in many different ways. I took my documentary to the United Nations and asked for a new law which would stop punishing the women and the girls and instead punish the traffickers and the buyers who were creating the demand for trafficking. And I managed to get that passed, not just alone, with a whole host of friends and allies, NGO leaders, activists, law enforcement people, member states, uh, leaders from different countries, feminists, child rights advocates. And I did the same. I went and took the documentary to the U.S. Senate. I showed it there to the U.S. Congress and the Senate. And... uh, I played a role in the passage of the first trafficking victim protection act in the U.S. Um, I testified about what happens to girls. And then I also went back to the women who had told me their story in my, uh, while I was filming. And I said, what do you want me to do? And they said, we want you to do four things. We have four dreams. We want a school for our children we want a room of our own where a customer cannot walk in wherever he, whenever he likes. We want a job which has old age pension and uh, no violence. And we want punishment of our perpetrators, those who had bought us and sold us. And that became the business plan of an NGO that I set up with those 22 women. The NGO, we called it Apnea, which means self-action in Hindi. And we also called it Apne Women Worldwide. Half the words are in Hindi and half in English, and half the words mean self-action, and the other half means women worldwide, because we wanted to form small circles to organize inside the red light areas, but also to form circles which would connect with each other like a rhizome in the world and be part of a global movement against human trafficking, against sex trafficking. So I am a journalist, I'm a lifelong activist and now I'm going back to my writing roots in a different way as an author because I feel there is nothing greater than literature to change our hearts and minds and I have a story to tell which is based on both truth and hope. Like all great literature, it's about a girl who escapes the sex trade by becoming a kung fu champion. And that story, I decided to tell it as fiction, even though it's based on true life stories inside my NGO Apne Aap, where a girl did win a karate gold medal. And then many girls won karate gold medals after that, finished school, went to college, because that one girl's courage ignited change in the whole community. But uh, also, uh, I wanted to tell the story as a novel, as fiction, because I felt that I can go into the feelings of my characters, the mother, the father, the brother, the teacher, the woman's right advocate, the girl herself, who's about to be sold into the sex trade, which no data sheet can do. I wanted people to empathize with her because through my book i can and i fly i'm hoping not just to educate everyone who reads this book about the importance of women's collective action about the importance of courage and hope about the importance of girl empowerment education also the importance of um, our bodies And that they belong to us and to nobody else. So I wanted to share all this with people in this book. And education is definitely a big part of it. But I also wanted them to feel in their hearts and become part of the movement against sex trafficking. So literally with this book, I'm passing the baton on to all the people who will read this book to join the movement. And so therefore, I call myself an author and activist, author-activist, um, and that's who I am.
1: The character in this book is Kira, and we meet her family, and we see the very complicated web that is sex trafficking and how difficult it is to extricate anybody From that web, can we define some of the terms that we've used so far? You talked about the red light district, um, about sex trafficking. Can we go ahead and unpack that for listeners and situate your character, Hira, in that, please?
0: I have tried to introduce the terms which are actually in use in the human trafficking world. So, for example, I use the term in the life. And very often women who are sex trafficked or are trapped in prostitution do not use the term prostitute for themselves, nor do they use the term uh, sex trafficked for themselves. They say we are in the line or in the life. So that's why I have used the term in the line very often in my book. The other term that I have used in my book is the place where Hira lives. I call it a red light district. Now, why is a place where Hira lives called a red light district? Why not a green light district or a blue light district? Why should any district be defined by a light? So let me describe to you the lane. Hira lives in a very narrow dirt strip, which has mud huts on both sides. It's right next to the railway tracks in the poorer part of town. There is no electricity there and there is no plumbing. If Hira even has to have a bath or use the toilet, she has to go across the railway tracks and go to the railway platform because that is the only source of running water. When her brother has to study and do his homework, he goes to the streetlights in the highway and sits under there to do his homework at night. So in this lane with mud huts on both sides, basically the mud huts are also not fully mud. They're made of bamboo and straw and many of them don't even have roofs. They just have a plastic sheet and many of them don't even have a cemented floor uh, so that when there is monsoon rain, sometimes the mud huts get completely flooded out and filth just floats on the water of the houses that the women live in. There are normally these huts have two rooms, one in the front, which normally has a bench in front of it, and a room at the back, which serves as a room where the customers take girls, and these rooms just have one narrow window and a bed fills the whole room. Now these mud huts on both sides of this trip lane are brothels. And the women live in the rooms in the front rooms and bring in customers. Uh, for in the back room in in front of the front rooms is a bench and the girls who are sold to the customers or clients sit on the benches under a lantern which casts a pool of light on the face of the girl who's normally uh, made to sit with some mascara around her eyes, lipstick, um, a red lipstick and powder on her face and even made to make her breasts look bigger by stuffing uh, cell phones and cotton and other things inside the bras so that they look more appealing to customers. And these pools of light are on their faces from the lanterns which are above them. In a uh, uh, the history behind this. And so this is just to attract all the customers so that they can see the girls sitting there when they come at night. So this trip lane is called Laltain Bazaar. Bazaar, as you know, means market. And Laltain means the lanterns which are hanging over the girls' heads. Traditionally, when the red light districts came into being, they actually came into being in the big cities. And they came into being during British colonialism. So when the British ruled India, uh, many of their soldiers and clerks were far away from England and just doing administrative and military jobs to keep the empire running. They were away from their wives and their children and their homes. And the British wanted women to be sexually available for them, but they wanted them to be disease free. So what they did was they created red light districts near cantonments under a law called the cantonment act and then they created another law called the contagious diseases act which was basically that these places near the cantonment which were homes to keep women in prostitution sexually available for British soldiers and clerks uh, would get licenses uh, to keep disease-free women and to operate brothels. Now, these licenses could only be renewed periodically if the women were taken to the municipal hospital every week or every month, check for diseases that they didn't have, syphilis and other things. If they were disease-free, licenses would be renewed. These license numbers were then hung up outside the brothels under a red light so that when the soldiers and the clerks came looking for women, they could see Welcome House 67, Welcome House 23. And when they saw that under the red light, they would know, yes, this is a safe place to go and buy a girl or a woman. And that is why these brothel districts began to be known all across the British Empire as red light districts. So that is how the word red light district came into being. And that is why the girls' bazaar where Hira lives in, where women sit on benches under a pool of light of a lantern, is known as a red light district.
1: All of the people in the book, as you mentioned a few moments ago, are fictionalized but you also mentioned that they're based on real people, that this is based on a real place that you visited, that you've spent time in. And geographically, it's located not far from Nepal. And that becomes a very significant fact of this particular story. Do you wanna give us the background on how all of those things in the caste system come into play here?
0: Yes, so I will answer this question and I'm gonna break it up into four parts. I will start by talking about the caste system, the last bit first, and then go backwards into answering all the other questions. Yes. So um, uh, when the British set up the red light districts, they began to look for people who were the most vulnerable to keep in the red light districts. People who they considered were disposable people and people who could not stand up to them. So where did they go looking for such women and girls? They looked in two places. One was among the oppressed castes who were traditionally looked down upon in India by the Indians themselves. And I will explain a little bit more what do I mean by the word caste. So caste is a social stratification which is man-made and it is based on the occupation of somebody. So uh, if you are somebody who sells meat, then you will belong to the caste of the butcher, If you are someone who makes leather shoes, you will belong to the caste of somebody who is a cobbler. If you are somebody who does farming, you will belong to the farming caste. If you are a professor, you would belong to the caste of professors. And there are 64,000 such castes in India. And what the British, not the British, what Indians also did, through religion, was said that each of these 64,000 castes have a rank. So the highest rank were the people who would keep the knowledge, who would uh, conduct all the rituals in temples, etc. So these were known as the Brahmins. And then, of course, uh, there were the people who were the kings and who would be in the military. So they were known as the Takurs or the kshatriyas the second caste. And so on it went to the point that the people who performed the most menial tasks, like cleaning toilets or working with leather or um, even scavenging, um, tailoring, they were called untouchables and they were the lowest of the totem pole the lowest of the lowest caste and therefore they were the most oppressed to the point that in some places caste was is played out in such a way that uh, these castes were told that even if your shadow falls on somebody from an upper caste or a higher caste, then you have sinned. So you must go and atone for it. And the higher caste person would immediately go and take a bath. Now, this sounds incredible to you that it has survived for thousands of years in India, but it has. And to the point that in some places, the segregation is so extreme between the castes that uh, people from the oppressed castes are not allowed to drink from the same well, you know, the drinking water well as people from upper caste saying, oh, you will pollute the people who are of a higher caste. So it's a very complicated system of uh, hierarchy, which is man-made. A bit like race, but not exactly because with race, you can at least change. You can, there's upward mobility, you can move around, and you can also notice it because it's based on skin color. But in caste, you can't notice it, it's not based on skin color, it's based on occupation, and therefore. People who are, say, from the tailoring caste, if they give birth to children, they are told that your children will have to be tailors too. If they are potters, then they are told that their children will have to be potters too. Of course, with modernization, there of course, it doesn't exist to the extent that it used to because now potters' children will go to school and gain an education and decide to become teachers or doctors or lawyers. Um, but in villages across India, and Nepal too, Uh, the caste system still exists and there is less flexibility to move because the village knows exactly who the family is and what caste they are. And if somebody from that family tries to break away, then the entire village will boycott that person and suppress that person. As you know, in my book, I Kick and I Fly, Hira is from a caste which everybody considers is meant to be sex trafficked, is meant to be prostituted. But how can that be? And so I did some digging when I began working through my NGO Apnea to find out like, can this be true? Can there be a caste which is destined for prostitution? And then I found that actually this this, uh, superstition or this belief was not that old. It had just started in the 1850s. 19th century, under British colonialism, back to square one. Because when the British took over India's forests for the timber that they needed for the Second World War and the First World War, they basically evicted all the nomadic tribes from there. After evicting the nomadic tribes from there, they told them that you can't even continue to do what you do in terms of moving from one place to another because you will be making products that we want to make. You will be selling products that we want to sell. The British wanted to replace all Indian manufacturing and trade with made-in-England products and sale of made-in-England products. So what they would do then at that time was to outlaw all the people making products in India, which were these nomadic tribes. For example, these nomadic tribes would make medicines from the forest produce. The British said, You all are quacks, and we are going to replace you with Klaxo Smith Klein. Then these nomadic tribes were great dairy farmers and they would sell cheese and milk and other dairy products. The British outlawed them saying that, no, our company, Coventers, will come and sell all of this. These uh, nomadic tribes were very good at making bamboo and iron utensils. The British banned that too. So these people were banned from their land, and they were banned from their livelihoods. And Not only that, British authorities said that they would have to prove that they were not secretly traveling at night when everyone was asleep by showing up at midnight and at four in the morning, the men in the community. And because they were not allowed to move, they were not allowed to own land, and they were not allowed to have a livelihood, many of these nomadic communities uh, ended up as quarters on the land of very, very important landlords who would collect taxes from the people for the British, or they would become squatters on government land, like near the railway tracks. In return, the men had to do the most menial chores, and the women had to be sexually available for British authorities or the landlords. And that is how these communities became trapped in what I call intergenerational prostitution. Prostitution that is passed down from mother to daughter and pimping from father to son. So this is the kind of community that Hira lives in. Her community is also a nomadic group which was banned and called a criminal tribe by the British. And they ended up squatting a along the railway tracks and slowly began to be sexually available for anybody to the point that they even forgot that they had done something else before then. And there is a passage where Hira's mother reminds Hira that actually uh, the nomadic community that Hira comes from is not meant and not destined for prostitution. This is not something which they were born to do. And she explains to Hira that when the community and the tribe were nomads, they would go from forests to the plains, they would sell products, make medicines, they would do acrobatic feats like walking the tightrope, they could sing and dance. And she explains to Hira how her own brothers, Hira's uncles, were very famous uh, wrestling champions. And they would also perform as vans is what these wrestling champions were known as, That how they would perform in different places and win matches and all of that. So she tries to remind Hira that her destiny could also belong to the nomadic side of her family, which is still extant. And not everyone has to... De- ended up in sex trafficking or in a brothel or in prostitution now this also is what you were asking me about hira lives 14 kilometers away from nepal in india because for these nomadic tribes national boundaries meant nothing they lived in forests and came to came to the plains and that's all they knew so Uh, For example, Hira's family actually comes from the mountains of Nepal. But every year they would come down in winter to the plains of India. So for them, India and Nepal were both their own country in a way. And that is why the border of India and Nepal really meant nothing to them. And the same thing is also true uh, for other things. Like Hira, when she wants to run away from the red light district, she contemplates going away to Nepal, where she thinks that she can join her champion wrestling uncles and become a wrestler herself. Uh, Because Nepal does not seem to her like a foreign country, but her brother stops her because he says, how will you go that far? And how can a girl become a wrestling champion? We see in
1: the book that she's attending a local school When we meet her, she's 14, and school is difficult for her. We see a scene where she's found some sneakers that were thrown away near the railroad tracks, and she tries to repair them and and make them look nice. And we see her walking to school in these shoes, and she's proud of herself. She likes that she has these shoes, that she's going to school. And as soon as she gets there, it all falls apart when some of the children start bullying her. Can you take us through how school is both a refuge for Hira and a difficult place for her?
0: Hira comes from a home where there is hunger. There's literally no food at home. Her mother breaks stones on the highway to somehow get some money to buy food for Hira, her brother, and her two younger siblings. And yet, a mother can never get enough money to buy food to feed them through the day. Uh, sometimes a mother even does some scavenging near the railway tracks for thrown away food and will just boil the scraps that she finds to feed her children. But the children are always hungry. So to Hira, school means a source of food because in the school, every single day, there's a midday meal, a freshly cooked midday meal. And for Hira, sometimes that is the only food that she will eat the whole day. So that is why school is very important to her. School is also very important to Hira because that is somewhere where There is no shouting and fighting where she can sit peacefully with her teachers away from the red light area and just concentrate on different subjects, have normal conversations with the kids around her. And thirdly, school is very, very important to Hira, Hira's mother and Hira's cousin as a way out of the destiny of the girls in their tribe. Because through school, Hira's cousin tells her that you can then become a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, you can be educated. Her mother also believes the same thing, that with an education, Hira can get a job and does not have to be sold into the cattle fair, just like her cousin Meera was sold. So School also represents an escape and the possibility of a different future. That is why school is very, very important to Hira. But on the other hand, you know, the school is the place where children from mainstream society bully Hira. They bully her because of her caste, because she comes from a caste which the town and the village believes is meant destined for prostitution. They also know that she's hungry. She comes in torn clothes. The scene that you described, that her shoes, which she wears, normally she used to come barefoot. And then she would be, you know, teased by the other children, saying, oh, you're barefoot. So when she puts on shoes, she feels very proud. But the shoes are picked up from near the railway tracks. They're a little torn. They're a little dirty. She has tried to make them more beautiful by painting little flowers and sticking bindis on them. But uh, the children are cruel and they say, oh, your toes are sticking through the shoes and they bully her again and they laugh her and tease her. Some even say, why do you even bother to come and study? Because we know that your future is going to be in prostitution. So Hira has to face bullying, body shaming, In school, because of her caste, because of her sex, because of her tribe, and also because she's always the worst student in the class because she's too hungry to concentrate on her lessons. And it's not just the children who bully her, but sometimes it's the school principal, some other teachers. And Hira has to overcome all of that to hang on and stay in school. So she needs a lot of resilience and tenacity to do that.
1: She had one friend at school named Rosie. And when the story begins, Rosie is not there and Hira is more alone than ever. And the loss of Rosie is really one of the inciting incidents that drives the plot. Can you tell us about the relationship between Hira and Rosie and what it means to the story? Hira and Rosie
0: are best friends. In a school where no other girl or boy will talk to Hira because she comes from the red light district, because her clothes are torn, because she's too hungry to focus on lessons, she has this one friend and that makes all the difference to her because Rosie will always ask Hira to sit next to her. Rosie will help her with lessons. Rosie invites her home. And all of this means that Hira has self-confidence. It means Hira has a connection to someone from mainstream society, which gives her hope that she can carry on and builds her self-esteem. Rosie's brother, Manoj, is also somebody who is friendly with Hira when Rosie is friendly with her. But one day when Rosie disappears, Manoj also distances himself from Hira and stops talking to her. Now, Rosie disappears because Rosie's father decides to send her off to Nepal with her mother. And nobody quite knows why this happens. Hira doesn't understand it either. And that's the plot of the story, that why does Rosie disappear to Nepal and what happens to her eventually? And what does Hira do to find her friend and recover her from a very dangerous situation? The friendship between the two girls, one did not give up on her when she was in school and the other does not give up on her when she goes missing. And they overcome class boundaries, they overcome even boundaries of countries, because we begin the story in India, but we end the story in New York. And uh, they also overcome boundaries of class and caste. But these two little girls find strength in each other's friendship and also the courage to stand by each other against all odds.
1: One of the things that might be surprising for readers and listeners is that Rosie would seem to come from a family that could protect her because of her father's position. But you've laid a lot of foundation for what colonialism has done to cause so much ongoing generational harm. Can you talk to us about how Rosie's father is embroiled in this matter as well? Okay, spoiler alert for all of you
0: who are listening to the podcast. So Rosie's father is a cop and he's from an upper caste family. Rosie's mother is not his legitimate wife. She's a Nepali woman that he lives with and Rosie is born of that union. So she is not recognized by mainstream society as a real daughter nor is the woman who's Rosie's mother recognized as any woman with rights either to his inheritance or to his property. And finally, uh, this man who is Rosie's father, he's a corrupt cop. He decides one day that he wants to make more money and even sell Rosie. And he's corrupt uh, and in collusion with the trafficking crime lord who operates Hira's Lane. And you know, nobody knows why this corrupt, this man has become, this cop has got a, become a bent cop. Why is he corrupt when he's upper caste, when he's a cop? Why does he even need to work with a trafficking overlord? Now, there's a secret in his own past where he was caught as a child pornographer and slowly got blackmailed into bringing in girls from Nepal for the trafficking ring to take to Bombay and sell. As a cop, of course, he could easily do so, travel between India and Nepal, bring girls, no questions asked. And that's how he got into it, to the point that finally the trafficker asked for his daughter, and he had to let her go.
1: There's a woman in this story who's pivotal. She runs a hostel, and she's both in the community and not. She has connections, but she also has the trust of the women and girls in the community to some extent. And because of that, she becomes incredibly important to both Rosie and Hira's outcome. Can you talk about what it means to have the hostel there and how it might be modeled on your own work?
0: The woman is called Rini Di. Di in uh, Hindi means sister and older sister, really. So her name is Rini. She comes from a slightly upper class family. She's educated. She's feisty. She's also uh, very fond of martial arts. Uh, She is a Kung Fu teacher and uh, she is from the village, but from a better Uh, has had better opportunities and is definitely from an upper class family. So she wants to give something back to the village and she starts uh, this hostel for vulnerable children in the village. She herself lives in New York and uh, there she used to be a journalist and had tracked down a trafficking ring as a journalist and uh, had always, always wanted to dismantle this trafficking ring, especially when she found it had links to her own village. She is investigating this trafficking ring to see where the absolute kingpins are so that she can dismantle them. She also has been supporting this hostel In Bihar to help the children of her own village uh, get a better life. And she has tied up with another hostel owner in America where they do kung fu training programs for vulnerable children from the whole world. So this is Rini Dee, and she's a women's rights advocate. That is why she's a journalist to give a voice to women. And that is why she is running this hostel to help girls escape the cycle of poverty and exploitation. And that is why she teaches martial arts both in America and in India and encourages girls, uh, especially from poor families, to learn martial arts like karate and kung fu so that they understand the power of their bodies. Now, yes, of course, Rini Dee is a little bit based on me. Uh, I am a feminist, I am a women's rights advocate I do live in New York my hometown, my childhood home is in Calcutta and in Fort Bizganj, exactly where uh, the book is based I do run an NGO called Apne Aanp, and I am a journalist, I used to be a journalist and my NGO does uh, support the education of girls just like Hira to go to school um, from the red light district and we have a community center in the red light district and my NGO also has a hostel attached to a school where children from the red light areas can stay safe and protected, uh, supported through their homework and other lessons and be able to eat properly and sleep safely. So, yes, it's a little bit modeled on the work that I do, a little bit modeled on who I am, and a little bit more, the book is based on the true life stories of the girls in my NGO. In fact, you know, I began writing I Kick and I Fly when a girl just like Hira won a gold medal in karate. My heart was really full in that moment because I knew how much that girl had gone through to win the gold medal. She came from absolute poverty. There was no food at home, just like Hira. The roof in her house was leaking, just like Hira. The father was an alcoholic and wanted to sell his daughter into the sex trade, again, just like Hira. And in the case of that girl, there was no mother to even protect her, no cousin to stand up for her. And yet that girl did hang on and stay in school, she did uh, learn with great, great passion and tenacity to, uh, you know, become a Kung Fu champion and eventually win a gold medal. And I saw that when she won the gold medal, then suddenly something changed right in the school itself because then the school could be proud of her. The teachers who would tell me, why do you want to educate children from red light areas? You know, this community will never change. Suddenly, they saw her bring a gold medal for the school and began to respect her. I saw something in the community change. Because then other women began to fight for their daughters to go to school and feel that, yes, there was a chance that their daughters could have a better future. I saw the village change because the villagers who would tell me, oh, you know, you should not mix up children from mainstream society with children from, uh, with children of prostitutes. Why don't you run two hostels? And they also felt that, oh, you know, these girls are bringing in gold medals for our village, our district. So the courage of one girl was so contagious. I saw that. I also saw in reality how women's collective action can bring about change. Because it really did happen that, uh, you know, when I wanted to uh, bring one girl into school, It was very, very hard because the traffickers, uh, you know, would say, we won't let you take her to school. They would, uh, you know, beat up my staff members. They even stabbed one of my staff members. They used to attack our office. They would steal our fans and our files. I once had someone someone pulled out a knife at me once uh, saying, I'm not going to let you do anything here. And it was in that moment, that, you know, there were 22 mothers who suddenly formed a circle around me and told the trafficker or whoever he was that if you want to kill her, you have to kill us first. And the man slunk away, thinking it was too much trouble to kill 23 women. And in that instance, in a very practical way, I learned the power of women's collective action. And I also learned that, you know, there's nothing more powerful than a community which comes together around an issue which it cares about. Because here were these people, I thought they were powerless, but they rescued me. And it was just a circle of women. And that's why, you know, the apnea model has always been forming circles. We call them mandalas. Mandala means circle in Buddhism. And in Hindi, so we form and organize in small circles, which are completely non-hierarchical. And the NGO that I run, Apnea, it always is inside the red light district. There's a community classroom. There's a kitchen always. There's a dojo, the dojo or the kun uh, where the girls do martial arts, the kitchen where they get hot prepared food which is cooked by the women from the red light area the mothers groups and they get help with homework there's always a classroom and if they are not in school then they get uh, prepared for school through classes there's also playtime. there is storytelling where the women sit in circles and tell stories to each other cry and laugh and learn that they are not crazy. The system is crazy. And of course, there is training on rights. There is training on hygiene, healthcare, starting livelihoods, bank accounts. So Akne Ab does this in red light district after red light district. And over the years, we have helped more than 20,000 women and children exit systems of prostitution. We have educated Thousands of girls, just like Hira, finished to finish school and college. And one of the important changes and the breakthrough moments was when a girl won a gold medal in karate. Because suddenly they felt they could win something. And that really did make a difference. So that's why I wrote I Kick and I Fly. uh, You know, because I thought, you know, I've got to share this story with the whole world. It is so incredible, but it's so true. And most people think, "Oh, nothing can be done about prostitution. It's as old as the hills." Some people have told me, "Men will be men," um, you know, and I want to challenge all of those people because they are both sexist and elitist when they say that. Because after all, you know, prostitution is an absence of choice, and it can be challenged if we increase choices for the most vulnerable girls and women the people I call the last girls. The last should definitely not be the least. The last should come first. So, you know, this is something that I got from Gandhi. He would always say that whenever he embarked on any action, he would shut his eyes and think about the impact, the positive impact of that action on the weakest person he knew, the last person. And if the action would have an impact, then he would go ahead and do it. And that was his mantra. And that is my mantra too. For me, the last and the weakest person is the last girl. The 13-year-old in a brothel in Kolkata or Bihar, or the 19-year-old on a street corner in Queens, New York, or Atlanta in Georgia. She is poor. She's female. She's a teenager. And in America, she could be black or Native American. In India, she's from an oppressed caste or a minority religion.
1: What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I hope um,
0: that they go buy the book, they get interested in the book, and they go read I Kick and I Fly because I have written I Kick and I Fly for them. I want people to empathize with the last girl. And the last girl in my book is not a data. She's not a number. She's not a statistic. She's a human being. She's a flesh and blood girl who's hungry, who cries, who has friends, who wants to give up, who has complicated family relationships, who loses self-control, who fights for no reason at all and then fights for the biggest reason, Who does not? who's not doing well in school, who feels lonely and then struggles to do well in school, who loves her mother but fights with her mother and does not know what the future holds for her. But turns adversity into an opportunity and figures out a way to discover the power of a body through Kung Fu and how to fight for it. There's a sentence in the book uh, which I, in which Hira tells, uh, says that self-defense taught me I have a self worth defending. So I want everyone to go by I Kick and I Fly and read the book, empathize with Hira and know that while Hira's case may be extreme, that body shaming, bullying, sexual abuse happen to mostly all the kids out there. Girls especially, but boys too, and LGBTQI, the entire spectrum. The Center for Disease Control has just come out with a report saying that teen mental health is the biggest pandemic in America all the kids are reporting to be sad, lonely, suicidal. And the root causes are same, food insecurity, unstable housing, body shaming, bullying, and sexual abuse. The same five themes that I talk about in my book. And I'm hoping that by reading I Kick and I Fly, we will have a way of discussing these subjects with each other, adults and children, young people with young people, young people with adults, because we can do so through the third person of Hira, her mother, her brother, her father, her teacher, and uh, her mentors, because by discussing these subjects, we break the culture of silence. And only when we break the culture of silence can we change the end. You know, Gloria Steinem writes about my book, she's blurbed it saying it could save lives. And in the last five months, I've been traveling through the United States with my book, I Kick and I Fly. And I can see how it's resonating with school children in Harlem who are just 14 years old. And they come and hug me after reading extracts from the book. Two, People in the corridors of power, my book was also read inside the under the rotunda in the capital of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Again, there were policymakers and adult survivors of sex trafficking who read from the book along with people from the governor's office who are formulating policy. And they said the book enabled them to think about listening. Uh, communicating about the issues which we don't even think that a vulnerable girl goes through and how we can deal with it. So we needed something to talk to kids about. And finally, this book is here and it's based on truth. So I'm hoping that as many teachers and parents and uh, young people who listen to this podcast buy the book, share the book is the one thing I will tell you to do. Scholastic has also prepared a discussion guide to accompany the book, a reader's guide. And I think it will be very useful for adults because children and young people, teenagers, know how to discuss these issues, but adults are more uncomfortable. So the reader's guide may help them also.
1: Thank you so much for being here today. Professor Bhutta and sharing I Kick and I Fly. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. This is the academic life. Please join us again.